Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to the second part of our introduction to Shemitah. This, uh, the year of 5782, is a Shemitah year. It's also a leap year. All this stuff is happening, 5782. Um, and what, and we are, we've used this Shemitah year as an opportunity to explore our relationship with the environment. We started with some introductory classes about Jewish thinking around environmentalism and our responsibilities to creation. Now we're shifting to actually focus on Shemitah itself. We started last week by looking at the basics of the laws of Shemitah, especially having to do with the interruption in agricultural and economic life, that Shemitah is a complete cessation on agricultural labor. And we kind of like toggled back and forth with the fact that it is a very utopian vision, one that might not totally shake out on a practical sense, but I, I wanted to encourage us to look at it um, in its visionary aspects, right? To look at it, what kind of proposal is the Torah making in terms of what Shemitah entails? Like what kind of society is it envisioning? What kinds of critiques of normal society does Shemitah offer? Just like Shabbat in a way is a critique of normal life, Shemitah is also in its total kind of pulling the handbrake on agricultural and economic life, a critique of what normal life is like. So by holding up this kind of this ideal image or mirror image of what else society could look like, Shemitah is teaching us something. And the other um, aspect I was, I was advocating for is that Shemitah is not just the year itself, but also how it's a kind of pedagogy. The Shemitah is teaching us something in the experience of the year such that it changes us once normal life resumes in the eighth year. So Shemitah, on one hand, is what is occurring within the year itself, the technicalities of when you're supposed to stop harvesting and what, 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 what agricultural work entails. And then secondly, it's also the way in which it helps us change our relationship to what normal looks like once the, uh, once the cessation of the normal has occurred. Uh, and last but not least, also, the way in which during Shemitah involves a certain kind of, let's say, reduction to the common mean, that everyone is on the same plane, everyone's on the same level. There's a wilding of the earth, as I called it, the way in which we let the earth kind of take its own course, and in that way, there's also a wilding of, of us. And that's actually what I want to explore in this, in, in this session tonight, focusing especially on the interhuman aspects of Shemitah. So I want to review a text that we saw. Um, and I want to give it a little bit more time now. So let me just call up the source sheet. Okay. Everyone see that okay? Great. Yeah. Excellent. Um, Uh, oh, there we go. I went too far. Great. Okay, so I want to I want to go back to this. Two kinds of shemitah. Okay, so we're looking at a Gemara from Gittin. Now, as uh, as hopefully we all know by now, now we've had our classes in Talmud and the like. We know that the Gemara is not like a systematic work. It has lots of different dips and dodges. It, it's more of an associative work. So the fact that there's a tractate on Gittin, which is about divorce, means that it talks about primarily about the laws of divorce, but also it ends up talking about all kinds of things. And we might actually think, oh, what's Shemitah have to do with divorce? Well, nothing literally, but Shemitah in a way is us taking, you know, maybe a, a conscious separation, conscious uncoupling from the earth, 
uh, you know, letting each of the us and the earth get our space or something, you know, maybe we move into a motel. Uh, so let's, let's look at the text. It says this. Ditanya Rebbe Omer, so we quote a Brito, a Tanaitic uh, tradition. It says, Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, the editor of the Mishnah, says, and this is the matter of Shemitah, Zedvar Shemitah. Shemot, right, which is where we see the word Shemitah comes from, it's the same root, Shin Memtet. Bishtei Shemitot, katuv Midaber. So Shemitah talks about two kinds of Shemitah, two kinds of cancellations, two kinds of abrogations, two kinds of withdrawals, two kinds of letting go, two kinds of release. I talked about two kinds of Shemitah, and they're equal, right? Where one is, the other one is, where the other one is, the other is. Echat Shemitat Karka, Echat Shemitat Ksafim. There's the Shemitah of land, right? The release of the land from our control over it, our use of it. And there's the release of money. When, when, you're, when you have Shemitah with one, you have Shemitah with the other. When you don't have Shemitah with one, you don't have Shemitah with the other. In other words, they are two, even though our primary association with Shemitah is, let's say, ecologically oriented, still Shemitah is equal parts human and earth, equal parts creation and creature, such that the radical revision of human relationships is just as important in Shemitah as is our cessation from agricultural labor. Okay. So just before before we get into the details, let's just do a quick little quiz. Okay, so what is Shmitat Ksafim? When it says the release of money, what does it entail? Translation has an answer, so don't look at the translation. It's a forgiveness of a loan. Yes, that's right. So just as in the Shmita year, we let's say again, like maybe again, consciously uncouple from the earth for a year in terms of being it being an economic partnership. But the result of that, right, then is a kind of is this kind of radical revisioning of society. Shemitah also uh, is a is a complete break in another fundamental aspect of economic life, which is credit. Right? Credit, i.e. the credit debtor relationship. So someone loaning somebody capital, someone loaning somebody money. Okay, so all loans have a seven-year, well, a Shemitah year uh, cancellation date. So if you loan somebody money in the sixth year of the Shemitah cycle, what, what might you imagine a loan shark would think or a creditor would think? They, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't want to loan the money because they're going to say, oh, well, in another year, all is forgiven, so. Okay, so there might be some- I'm not gonna lose my money. Right, because they're worried they might not get it back. Okay, Nisim, what were you gonna say? Exactly the same. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, and that is that is the natural kind of uh, induction from this premise, right? That if there is a Shemitah cap on all loans, then that really might um, throw a monkey wrench in a fundamental aspect of economic life, right? If you are going to try to, let's say, start some kind of business or some kind of something, and you don't have the startup capital, you go to a creditor and you borrow money. You have, you get seed capital, right? And you're able to fund your, your venture, fund your endeavor. Loans are the, is the way the economic system can work. It's a way for people to reach, let's say, manageably beyond their means. Right? If we were only able to ever just use what we have, then the economy would not be able to sustain us. It's necessary for people, 
let's say in let's say in a society in which there's inequality, it's necessary for there to be a free flow of capital, right? For loans to be able to be made for people who need the need the extra money. Okay, but if the economy is founded on inequality, effectively, some people have the money and some people don't. Some people need the money and other people give the money. Shemitah is trying to provide some kind of critical edge to that normalization of inequality. Now, the way it's doing that is, is, by, is by pulling the handbrake on the whole credit system. And that's a pretty radical, you know, ra radical eruption. Um, but let's let's keep on going because the Torah is, you know, as as I hope we all agree, is not, um, you know, is not naive. Um, so let's look at, um, let's look at this text from Bahar, from the Sifra on Bahar. So Sifra is the Tanaitic Midrash on um, on Leviticus. Okay, so this is on Parshas Bahar. Um, you know the whole like fracas that's occurred recently with the view. Um, I was like, isn't Joy Bahar Jewish? Um, it turns out no, apparently. Um, but I was, I thought she was because of Bahar. But maybe I was thinking of Joy Bahukotai. Who knows? Um, that is a good joke. Thank you. Thank you for someone laughing. Um, okay. So, Devaracher, another take. Another hot take. Um, so, they quote a Pasuk in which it says, V'yichlu avyoneam echa. We saw this pasuk above, such that the poor of your land may eat. We saw la adam la adam la We saw this last week, right? That which is fit for a human being should go to a person. That which was fit for an animal should go to an animal. In other words, we uh, we have an economy reorganized according to need, right? What people need, they get. And it's not that you're hoarding to make sure you can profit, but rather that we have a an equal distribution of food, such that everything that is distributed is 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 going to who needs it. Um, and here we hit an interesting dilemma because it says your hired hands and your residents that includes the non-Jews. So a question we have about shemitah in terms of observing it is the cre creation is a universal feature. Everyone exists on earth. But Shemitah is a Jewish law. So how does Shemitah impact Jewish and non-Jewish relationships? This is one of the things we're going to explore tonight. And it's a complicated question. But I want us to figure out, by, by exploring that, I think we're going to try to figure out what it is Shemitah is trying to do. Um, but let's first look at the Pusuk, right? It's always very important to look at the Pusuk. So this is from Devarim chapter 15. Um, someone want to read the Pasuk? And uh, let's let's do it in the English. And I'll, I'll point out the Hebrew where it's necessary. Someone who's, and I'm going to say this because Lauren reads so beautifully so often, someone who's not Lauren, who would care to read? But thank you, Lauren, for your service. I'll read. You're Great. welcome. <laughs> Great. All right, Alan. Every, every seventh year? Mm-hmm. Every seventh year, you shall practice remission of debts. This shall be the nature of the remission. Every creditor shall remit the due that he claims from his fellow. He shall not dun his fellow or kinsman. For the remission proclaimed is of the Lord. You may dun the foreigner, but you must remit whatever is due you from your kinsman. Great. We need a translation for the translation, I think. What does dun mean? Great question. What do people think dun means from context?
I have an answer, but let's see if we can figure it out. Screw over? Yeah, that is that is exactly right. That is that's precisely right. Um, to oppress effectively. So okay, so let's just break it down to normal human language. Every seven years, right, debts are canceled. This is the nature of the canceling, right? If you if someone if you have a debt over somebody, if you if someone if you've loaned somebody money, then you actually you have to you let go of the loan in the shemitah year, and you're not allowed to done to uh, to to oppress your fellow or kinsmen okay because it is a shemitah for god but you can it seems maintain a loan or done in whatever way that means but it seems like it means it can you can keep the loan um from a foreigner from a nochri okay from a stranger i.e somebody in the out group okay um, now, the nature of this difference, right, that you can't dun your kinsman, but you can dun the foreigner. Fascinatingly, Rashi and Rambam agree, Rambam agree, that it's actually a mitzvah assay. You're actually, it's a positive obligation for you to actually, in some way, uh, maintain a financial relationship in that, in that strong way with a non-Jew. Meaning what? Well, what do we what do we take this to mean? It's like a, a flux of uh, of income that you can have during the shemitah year. Mm -hmm. Okay. So can you can you expand on that? I think you're getting at something important. Yeah, because um, this person is going to continue paying for the loan that have with you during the the um the shemitah year mm -hmm. so it's going to be an income and that flux of, of money it's gonna help the entire community because we're bringing money in okay okay so here you're saying here is what let's say a stopgap measure so rashi and rambam say it's actually you have to do it you have to maintain the loan even in Shemitah when the loan was taken out by an Anjou. Whereas Ibn Ezra says it's Rishus. You, you can if you want, it's not necessary. But what would motivate Rashi and Rambam to actually say Shemitah is on one hand a universal practice because we saw above in the Sifra that it includes non-Jews. Right? That the distributionary aspect of Shemitah includes non-Jews right that um agricultural labor stops you're not allowed to employ non-jewish farm workers to work your land whereas you obviously can't employ jewish farm workers to work your land imagine a shemitah system right in which it was completely particularist completely jew only right that like oh, okay i can't hire a non-jew to work my lands but i can hire a shemitah goy and the shemitah goy can work my farmlands Right. What kind? I mean, that would have a very strong ripple effect. I mean, it, it is the straight, same kind of like critique we see of the notion of the. Is everyone familiar with the notion of a Shabbos goy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very important book on that phenomenon called Jacob by by a historian named Jacob Katz. Funny, there's there was a funny joke. It says like, oh, you know, it's a good thing that academics don't have aren't named after their books the way like rabbis are, because otherwise Jacob Katz would have been known <laughs> as the, the Shabbos goy. <laughs> um, but, um, 
But yeah, Jacob has wrote a book about this, like development of this phenomenon. And it is a phenomenon that existed. And it existed because of economic need. Well, let's say lifestyle need, right? That there is, let's say, certain standard of living you need. Uh, I think it's especially the case in, let's say, societies in which Jews attained more of a bourgeois status. And they were able to maintain these kinds of relationships to keep uh, to keep things going, to keep the fire stoked on Shabbat. Yeah, exactly. So to keep the fire stoked on Shabbat. But I mean, honestly, you know, like this is the case with lots of synagogues, right? Synagogue got a maintenance person, right? It's got a, a security guard. It's got, you know, the people who do the catering on Shabbos, you know, for a bar mitzvah or something like that. Now, you know, there's the, on one hand, it, you have a critical relationship to it. Oh, I mean, let, let's play this out. What would your critique of the Shabbos or Shemitah Goy um, phenomenon be? What's, what's your, like, let's say your, what's your intuitive pushback? It, it stoke your, like, social Jewish justice warrior. Well, if we, if we had Shemitah Goy, then we wouldn't really actually be experiencing Shemitah at all. Okay, so part of it maybe has to do with us, right? That's a way of kind of, like, cheaping out on the experience. Yeah. Okay, great. Okay. Isn't uh, um, the Hatchet the Mechira kind of getting around it that way? Because you're selling to a non-Jew. Are, are you going to be going through Hatchet the Mechira? I'm going to kindly insist we bracket all discussions of the Hatchet the Mechira until we actually tackle it. Hatchet the Mechira is a 20th century phenomenon after the resettlement of Palestine by Jews. And the question of, okay, now it's post-Torah post times. Are we doing Shemitah or not? What's going on? Or are we going to starve to death? So we'll, we'll tackle all that when we get to it. it some very important, just, but I want to make sure I give it due, due consideration. But, uh, let, but let's say, but let's just stay in this question. Let's actually just like, let's laser in the Shabbos Goy, because I think, it, I think that's a very good parallel. So just talking about Shabbos Goy, right? What's the critique of the Shabbos Goy? So one Susie's kind of like stark critique of like, basically, you're, you're not doing Shabbos. Right. It's like, oh, you know, Nishim, you know, there's a great joke. You know, you go to shul and then someone's like, what's going on? It's like, oh, Nishim Shabbos Gret, you know, I'm selling my car. And the guy's like, oh, Nishim Shabbos Gret, how much are you selling it for? He's like, oh, Nishim Shabbos Gret, I'm selling it for, for $3,000. <laughs> and the guy, they go, and then they, you know, they have Kiddush, they go home. They come back at Mincha, the guy's like, oh, you know, Nishim Shabbos Gret, I'm actually interested in buying your car. And the guy says, oh, Nishim Shabbos Gret, it's sold. Right. So, like, you know, there's a way to use all these like loopholes or whatever to get around actually having Shabbos. Like the guy just sold his car on Shabbos by like, you know, thumb waving it away. So, like, yes, by doing Shabbos, you like you, you, you deconstruct the, the beautiful palace of, in time that is Shabbat. OK, Lauren, you're about to say. It, it feels like it's I know it's not, but if you look at it from the point of view of a Gentile, mm -hmm. I think it makes the Gentile seem inferior like oh you can use them to do your work right yeah that's exactly that, that is a great point right that it, there's a potential for exploitation there right and maybe the in a way a reinforcing of these let's ethnic or communitarian boundaries communal boundaries um that you know like oh you get to have a day off but they don't get to have a day off Right, or your day off is one in which you are like relying on them in this way. Or, you know, besides the whole like, oh, it's so hot in here. Who's going to turn on the air conditioner? I don't know. Like that kind of like weird, you know, rigmarole. All that having said. I think, okay, so that's like, those are two very good points. Both the internal point of that it chips away at Shabbos and the external point that it is, it's potentially exploitative. Right, this day or this year. 
that is supposed to be equalizing, that's supposed to be, you know, a year of social equity or a day of a utopian Edenic day of peace, not one of, of market-based exploitative relationships. Um, and yet, you know, we are in some ways using those in the outgroup to make sure that we can maintain a certain level of whatever comfort or, you know, to have hot pigs in a blanket on Shabbos. Um, but another way of looking at it, I think, and this is important, and this goes along, I think, with what perhaps Nisim's point was implying, is that that's, there's true, let's say, that you are re-entering a potentially exploitational relationship, exploitative relationship. But on the other hand, in a world, in a world, in a world in which non-Jews were insecure, in insecure positions, constantly exiled, right? You know, scared of their Gentile neighbors, da 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 da. How potentially radical actually was it, or promising was it, that what it meant to have Shabbos was to need to maintain positive relationships with non-Jews? Right, to be able to avail yourself of a neighbor, to be able to employ somebody in your you know, adjoining community, to be able to help you out. You're in their hands. You can't stoke the fire. You're vulnerable and you're inviting them into your home to help you. Now, yes, on one hand, like, you know, there were like literally servants right, in like early modern Germany, fine. But point is, is that there still is in some way actually intercommunal bonds that are being maintained. So there is on one hand, let's say, this is a demarcation of Shemitah as in, in one way, a universal practice, that you're not allowed to completely say, this is only Jews, I can employ non-Jewish farmhands, etc. It is for everybody, the land needs to rest, period. But when it comes to strictly human relationships, interhuman relationships, there's a little bit more complexity. And I would even say, and maybe, um, maybe Nancy would appreciate this, she was here tonight, that there, there's even a little bit of realism that per Nisim's point, there needs to still be a flow of capital, right? If the economy, especially if the main engine of the economy in the ancient world, because it's an agrarian economy, right? The farm is dormant. How is money working? How is economics working? You know, hopefully you have enough to like, you know, again, distribute and everyone gets what they need. But what if you need capital? So there's a compromise of sorts that Rashi and, and, and Rambam say, actually, we need to maintain these economic relationships to make sure that the world keeps on moving. Ibn Ezra says, you can be from. You can say, actually, you know what, I'm going to be so stark, I'm going to even withdraw from that and forgive even non-Jewish loans uh, during the Shemitah year. Here comes Chizkuni, a medieval commentator, who says basically this point. He says, Etanochri, right? So, Etanochri yigash, right? That you're allowed to dun the foreigner. Shezoreya vekotzer botzer sheacholim kor ulishalem oto tigash. Why? Oh, it's not just your world. The foreigner, the non-Jew, right? The nochri is allowed during. What can the nochri do on Shemitah? They can live their darn life. They have a farm. They have produce coming in, they reap and they harvest, sorry, they plant and they harvest and they prune. They have food coming in, they're producing, they're trading, they're selling, they're consuming, they are loaning, they are borrowing. Thus, yacholim koro shalem oto. 
And because of that, then you're allowed to economically deal with them. You're allowed to make sure that they pay you back. You're allowed to engage in trade with them. Why? Because they are a source. They are one of the sources in which you're, the world's able to turn. So I think what I want us to take away from this part is what seems at first to be, let's say, something that is like very Judeo-centric or something that's very like eth ethnically particular or even chauvinist, right? Like, oh, Shemitah seems like it's this beautiful earth year, but really you're allowed still to oppress the foreigner. The point rather is a realistic appraisal of what economic relations entail. One is that they still need to be maintained. Even a year in which you take a year off, they're not. So to suddenly withdraw, I mean, think about it this way. If every seven years you withdrew from the credit and debit system, what would that entail for somebody who didn't get Y? This is like the mirror image of the, the fact that we're going to, like the, the challenge we're about to see. We said before, Lauren mentioned before, if we knew that in this, if you made a loan in the sixth year, that you want the the guy you're loaning it to only has a year to pay you back. You might you know you know be more hesitant to actually loan them the money, which is maybe a pro which is a problem we're about to address. But think of it this way. But at least they would know why, right? If you were loaning, uh, you know, if Shmuley was loaning Yankel uh, money in the sixth year, and then the guy's like, listen, I, I'm going to be very strict about making sure you pay me back within seven months. The guy would at least get why. But if Shmulek was loaning uh, Richard the Lionhearted's uh, nephew, right? Like $1,000 or whatever. And he's like, yeah, but listen, um, you uh, need to pay me back in six months. Uh, and if not, then I'm going to, um, well, you'll get to steal my money. <laughs> I mean, what would that do? Right, what that would do would basically, it would either set the Jewish community up as marks Right, that they can basically, like, that means that there would be no possible economic relations with non-Jews because either they can take advantage of us or we're not going to do it. Or maybe we're going to, like, you know, send the goon squad or whatever to, like, you know, break their kneecaps until they give us the money right before Shemitah. Right, and that's not a good way to go into Rosh Hashanah. So, like, it, it would mean that, like, economic relations would be nigh unto impossible because they're not in on it. They're not part of it. I mean, famously, medieval Jews especially were employed as a class as loan sharks right so like the you know so maybe that's going into rashi's point too right it's like if if a big jewish business in, in in the medieval period is loaning money then the jews would not be able to maintain economic relations at all in the you know in this in this time period now apparently actually the the true story historically is a little more complicated there's been a couple books written about that recently about jews and, and the and the credit system but um point being is that the only way to maintain the flow of capital, especially in a year in which we're trying to experiment with something radical, is to make sure that it's being done sensibly. And one of the ways to do that is to either potentially or obligation, you know, or you have the obligation to make sure that you still maintain that those uh, those credit relationships with non-Jews. Yeah, Lauren. Okay, so maybe I'm not getting it, but I thought that all these laws only apply to being an heir to Israel. So would it apply to a medieval Jew living in, uh, in France or Germany? Uh, Shemitah Safim still applies. Oh, sorry, that's a I mean, Well, yeah, so when Gittin, when Gittin says when one applies, the other one doesn't, when one doesn't apply, the other one doesn't, 
the question is, in a sense, in Eretz Yisrael, we know that you're that it, like the laws of Shemitah is specific about is about um, Eretz Yisrael produce, right? Like produce grown in the land of Israel. But what about loans? So Gittin is saying, ah, maybe loans actually are also strictly about living in Eretz Yisrael. But a lot of but a lot of halacha it's not entirely universal. But the way it ends up shaking out is that Shemitah Safim is not just in Eretz Yisrael. Right, oh, okay. like, so it, it's it's complicated. It's a lot more complicated nowadays, and we're gonna again we're gonna get into it later. Um, but um, but you know, there's enough of a push to be concerned about that. Okay, thanks. Yeah, I mean, you know, besides also, we're I mean, we're gonna look at also the phenomenon, the pro spool, you know, like kind of Rebbe Akiva's workaround for this whole thing. Um, but you know, we'll, we'll get to it. But point is, is that what appears at first to be, I think, something that could appear chauvinist or like very particularist about like, oh, it's really you can like oh, done the foreigner. I think it ends up being a very sensible and realist understanding of the way in which we need to ensure the flow of capital to maintain economic relationships, especially if the other parties aren't in the same story we're in. Right. On one hand, we, uh, Shemitah is about the world. It's about the universe, it's about the cosmos, you know, like everything going into its source. And that's a beautiful point. But on the other hand, that's true if you're tapped into the story. I mean, it's true regardless, but more like it is active if you're tapped into the story. If you're not tapped into the story, right, then like it would be a, it would be a situation which we'd be potentially exploitable in a way that the Torah wants to make sure we're protected. All right. Any other comments, questions, critiques? I was just wondering, uh, or I guess maybe more to the point, I forget from last week. Uh -huh. um, well, you have to do Hazara. <laughs> you need to watch the video before you go sign the class. Sorry. Um, like, since they do, like, state blatantly, like, well, since the non-Jews are still farming and, and, and earning money from that, like, were the Jews allowed to buy produce? Like at the market? Yeah, that, so that that's what that's what, that, yeah. So part of it is making is to maintain those loans, and part of it is yeah. Oh, so the payback of the loans would be product, not necessarily yeah, money. Yeah. yeah, that's a great and that's a great point, Susie. It's another way in which, in a way, Shemitah or Shabbat, right, is a time of vulnerability in which we are dependent on our non-Jewish neighbors, and thus then it is maintain it is important it is essential that we maintain some kind of like economic relationships with them. Right, and ones again in which it's not just like us needing them, but also if they need us, then it's more equitable. Okay. So this moves us towards, I think, the kind of the challenge that we started with last uh, last week. Uh, the push, you know, that that maybe Shemitah is too idealistic. Like, oh, it's a beautiful idea, but it can never work. Right. right. Here comes the Shemitah, um, the Grinch, the Shemitah Grinch. Um, Okay, who wants to, so this is actually picking up right from the verses that we saw before. So Ellen, would you wanna uh, pick up the baton once, once more? There shall be no needy among you since the Lord your God will bless you in the land that your, the Lord your God is giving you as a hereditary portion. Okay, so this is continuing right from before that we saw that's saying you can, uh, you're supposed to forgive the loans and it will be okay, because why? There will be no needy. No one's going to need a loan. All right, so this is the utopian vision, right? Why do people take out loans? Because they need money. And God is saying in Shemitah year, you know, either God is saying the premise is 
it is a year of efficient distribution, right? Everyone who needs will get, you know, the money, the food for the humans, for the humans, the food for the animals, for the animals, et cetera, et cetera. And God's saying, and because now we've reorganized the distribution system to be not about making a profit, but about suiting people's, meeting people's needs, right? We've changed what the metrics of society look like. We've changed the standards of society. It's not about certain people profiting over others. Now it's about the society as a whole trying to make sure that everyone has what they need. Right, so it's very different. The, the benchmarks are different now. But on the other hand, right, so like maybe it's a realistic point, right, because what maybe Shemitah is a wholesale economic reorganization of society in which the standard of success is not profit, but rather satisfaction. Right, a very different vision. Or it is a more or less, say, a theological principle that's being said, that in the Shemitah year, God, you know, will ensure that there will be no needy. Okay, and thus the credit debit system is suspended. We don't need it because people will be fine. Okay, let's keep on reading. Um, let's actually, we're going to skip down to verse 11, although we'll go back, but can you just read verse 11? Actually, no, no, continue with verse 7. Continue with verse 7 because it's, it's, it's immediately under, undermining the point. If, however, there is a needy person among you... Wait, but it just said there will be no needy. What the heck is this saying? Okay, this is one of the classic stiras in the Torah. This is one of the classic, like, contradictions in the Torah. God says, literally three verses above, there will be no needy. And then in verse 7, God says, but if there's somebody who is needy. That's a null set. There's no needy. How can you have one person who is needy if it is zero? Continue. One of your kinsmen in any of your settlements in the land that the Lord your God has given you, do not harden your heart and shut your hand against your needy kinsmen. Rather, you must open your hand and lend him sufficient for whatever he needs. Beware lest you harbor the base thought. The seventh year, the year of remission, is re approaching, so that you are mean to your needy kids, kinsmen and give him nothing. So mean doesn't mean like nya nya nya, like the Shemitah Grinch. Mean in this case means meager, um, like like Scrooge. Sorry for using entirely Christmas metaphors for this, but okay, it's it's um, what's the word? What is Scrooge? Scrooge is um, stingy, miserly, stingy. Yes, okay. He will cry out to the Lord against you, and you will incur guilt. Give to him readily, and have no regrets when you do so. For in return, the Lord your God will bless you in all your efforts and in all your undertakings. For there will never cease to be needy ones in your land, which is why I command you, open your hand to the poor and needy kinsmen in your land. Okay. So while verse 4 is describing what seems to be primarily the Shemitah year itself, 7 through 11 is describing what situation? We've already actually gestured towards it, but what situation is 7 through 11 describing? This is the maybe the fifth or the sixth year, just before the Shemitah. Okay, good. And what's the, can you color in the lines? What's the situation? Uh, the situation is that there's a poor person around who really needs your help and uh, who wants a loan. And you, and you won't loan to him because you know that the... Um, loan will be canceled in the seventh year so 
Well, uh, no. Is it nullified? I said, no, sorry. I said, I said cancel culture. I was just kidding. Oh, uh, oh, oh, I didn't hear what. Okay. Yeah. So it. Um, so okay. You, and what's the, what's you the harden theory? your heart. What's the concern? The concern is that people will refuse to lend to the needy because they know that when Shemitah year comes about, around, they won't be able to get their money back. So they won't loan altogether. Okay. Good. But so conversely, Conversely, you'll have some people who'll say, I'll wait till that sixth year and I'll really, really beg for, for some help. Okay, okay. So let's say, you know, some like a, you know, a tornado sweeps through the city and it, it tears somebody's house apart and they need to build shelter. They don't have capital on hand. So they go to the local rich, you know, hoity-toity rich guy and say, hey, listen, I need a loan. And the guy's like, okay, here are the terms. And he's, wait a second, what's next year? It's like, oh, it's Shemitah. Never mind. Sorry. Uh, good luck living on the street. Um, right, you can't always control when you are in need. And thus, again, stressing the flow of capital needs to be moving, right? We need to make sure that people have money on hand, even if they don't possess the capital themselves, right? That's why a loan system is essential for a, like any kind of healthy economy. Okay. I mean, Robert, like, you know, how could it, you know, going to school, right? Like, uh, you know, et cetera. Yeah. I'm sorry. But no, what if uh, it only like turn, like instead of a loan, it just turn as a mazer. I'm sorry, you what? Yeah, like yeah, I, I have that in mind. Like I understand that you should like you shouldn't like it's alakha that you shouldn't close your hand and you have to help the okay. people. But yeah, why if just we understand that maybe mm -hmm. it's not exactly a loan and we take in account as a mazer. Um uh-huh right i mean i mean what's ideally, the difference ideally it would be lovely right if you know somebody gave it as tzedakah right to the person just to have the money they need to build a house but that's you know that's a big investment right that's like you can't rely on that yeah because the thing that i had on mind is if in in shemitah we are saying and we are like making making it physical we are making something physical that we have a monam bitachon and we said, okay, I will have my sustain. And also I remind that everything that I possess is not mine. It's just borrowed by Hashem. Okay. So even that money, mm -hmm. it's just a re uh, redistribution. Even better if it's in our own community. Because it's okay. things like when we're family. Like I think, well, feel, I feel that every Jew, we are all family. Right. So, so why I need to, to pursue that money back? Okay, good. I think you are, you are you are articulating I think the exact dilemma and I want to stay in the dilemma first but we're going to move towards trying to figure out in a sense how can we untie this seemingly untieable knot. The problem is this. Come Shemitah year the loans are canceled. It is a natural human inclination or whatever to say I cannot lend you the money cuz I don't believe that you'll be able to pay me back and I can't uh, I can't suffer the risk and I'm sorry but you're going to have to find money somewhere else to build your house. God then says um, if you are going to be so miserly, then the consequence of that, the, in what's supposed to, in a sense, be the stopgap measure or the, the you know the pushback on you, is that that the person who needs the money is going to cry out to God, and you will be guilty. Is that sufficient regulation? Like, is that a sufficient way to make sure that you are going to get over your let's say let's even justified economic anxiety? Right. Let's say you don't have that much money to loan. You only have a certain amount of money to loan and, you know, you might need it yourself. 
is it enough for Torah just to say, beware lest they best lest you in a sense deserve them giving you the evil eye and that they're going to say they're going to like cry out to God? Is that enough? That's the problem I want to explore. Yes, I saw Susie first. You're... Uh, yeah, sorry, I took a second to unmute. Um, I don't know if it's still relevant based on where you've just led the conversation, but if you start alone, like, what am I trying to say? So, like, you know, if you have a 25-year mortgage, for example, <laughs> like, does it for stop in the seventh year or you just don't have to pay anything that year and then you start paying again in the eighth year like can you just stretch the loan out past Shemitah instead of not giving it at all loans canceled okay so there's no that so the longest loan yeah, that could we are exist going is... to get to the way though what's called okay. the pros pool the way in which Rebbe Akiva managed to fi figure out a workable situation but it's also worth noting and I think this is to your point Susie that the notion of having being in debt for I don't know your entire life is a very is a pretty recent phenomenon okay. well mm, kind of i mean before you had debtors prisons right if you didn't pay your debts you were thrown in jail nowadays we have those again in america so that's great but um point is that the notion of like let's say a credit debt relationship in which a loan lasted you the entirety of your life effectively that's a fairly a fairly recent phenomenon i mean or like you know in it sorry um or the way in which, I mean, it's the same way in which the whole credit economy is working, right? Like, all of these Fortune 500 companies don't, a lot of them don't have, you know, they're supposed to have capital on hand to be able to pay back any loans that they're taking out. But a lot of them aren't, right? A lot of them are monetizing their debts, right? And they're just like on a razor's edge, which is why, you know, we saw a lot of these, you know, fissures break during the pandemic, right? Is that there needed to be that circulating capital, which is why all these, you know, stimuluses have had to basically be infused into the economy, you know, once every five years. That seems sustainable, right? Uh, yeah, Ellen. Kind of tagging on to what Susie said, but a little bit different. Um, what about instead of like a large loan that typically would cover let's say even a few years five years why not just give a small partial loan that can be repaid and then start a new loan after the shemitah yeah that's that way everybody's happy that seems like a good Ish. solution sure but i mean what if they just don't pay you i mean i mean one of the things i think that's like been really interesting to witness is kind of the relearning of the fact that all credit relationships are risk, right? Like I am loaning, loaning my money to a corporation when I invest in a stock, right? That's what all investments are in a sense, loans, right? And they owe me money back at some point. Now, speculation is a little bit different and it's worth getting into actually like the halakhic questions around the stock market. Um, but right. You always are entailing some kind of risk. If I am loaning money to a corporation, if they go belly up, I might not be number one on the call sheet when it comes to who gets paid back. I, at one point invested in my friends, like, um, uh, con you know, like boutique housing thing at one point, right. He called me up. He was looking for like an investor pool. I invested in money. I like went over these terms again and again and again. And I made sure we had terms down 
in which there was like a guarantee, you know, they had guarantors to make sure if the thing fell through, I would get paid back and when I would get paid back. But all, but you know, the fact is if, if something fell through or if I wasn't going to pursue it legally, I wasn't going to get my money back because the guy could disappear. The, the, you know, the business could fall through, who knows, right? So all credit relationships are risk. And Shemitah is this utopian dream, right, of a, of a year of equity, right, a year in which there isn't this exploitative thing, which means that you can't have these relationships maintained anymore. And yet, on the other hand, would that then, and this is the real moral challenge that the Torah is imagining, would that then end up actually creating a more barbaric society? Right, oh, the, the, the pressure, the expectation of the utopia means I can't even live normal life anymore. It's the reverse of what we were talking about last week. Last week we said the eighth year in a way, I said in a way, the eighth year is more important than the seventh year. What we learn from Shemitah and take into our real life is part of the work of Shemitah. Fine. But what about the sixth year? Is Shemitah going to ruin the sixth year, ruin the fifth year, make it so that poor people can't get what they need because of this dream of, of equality? Right? This is like the, you know, con this is a very, an old, like a, you know, a hoary critique of utopianism, right? Like, you know, you're not taking into account human nature. You're not taking into account, you know, like the contingencies of hum of, re of real life. You know, like, you know, you want your unicorns, right? Um, and the question now is, and this is the question we're left with, is Shemitah in a way just this utopian fantasy? Or is the Torah trying to actually legislate it in a way in which it is manageable? Right? Legislate it in a way in which, um, in which it's something that works. I want to believe, I do believe, we have to have, you know, bitachan and amuna, like Nisim was saying, uh, that it's not just, um, it's not just a dream. But let's so let, let's look into the details, okay? So Rashi says, lo uh, ta'mates. Do not uh, be stubborn. Right? Do not let your heart be obstinate. It says, Yesh lecha adam shemitztair im yitainim lo yitainim. Imagine a person who is uh, struck with pain over whether, whether they're going to loan or not loan. Lechach ne'emar lo ta'ametz. And thus it says, do not be obstinate. Yesh lecha sheposhet es yado v'koftza. Lechach ne'emar lo tikpotz. And on, on the other hand, there are people who will just give and give and give without a second thought, but then close it, right? I.e., let's say in the years one through four, they're like, great, fine, no problem. I'll, 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 I'll loan out. But then comes year five, comes year six, suddenly uh, they're gone, right? So the Torah has two verbs, says Rashi, and both of them are trying to address two different groups of people. One are the people who are, let's say, you know, really do their due diligence over each loan. Um, and in this case, it, it's saying you're not allowed to have a different decision-making matrix when it comes to, you know, before Shemitah. And the other people who, let's say, are like, you know, very loose with their capital, very loose with making loans, you know, subprime mortgages and the like. And then they might close up shop, you know, once the fifth year rolls around and, and it says, do not basically don't close off your hand. Okay, further Rashi says, may achicha avyon, you know, do not with, uh, withhold from your, your poor brother, your poor si sibling. Um, 
it says, Im lo titain lo, so chaliot achiv shel elyon. Here comes the consequence. It's not enough for Rashi just to say. If you are somebody who is very deliberate about loaning, do not become, let's say, more exacting or demanding once Shemitah rolls around. And if you're somebody who's actually like loves to loan people money because let's say you're a loan shark or something like that and you love you know and you want to enter these relationships you're not allowed to close up shop because i mean let's think of this again materially rationally the first per the first kind of person let's say is somebody you go to when you know you have a good business plan and they might and they might invest in you the second kind of person is the person you go to when you're you know they might break your kneecaps because you need the money right both of those people need to exist in society. There needs to be the people who, let's say, are the more responsible investors, and there needs to be the people, I'm not gonna say it's good to have loan sharks, but there need to be people in which there is, let's say, an, a more accessible flow of capital, um, let's say, in more contingent or emergent circumstances, okay? Those services need to exist all six years. Otherwise, the, the, the economic system is gonna close up shop. But then what's, again, what's going to keep people in line? Here comes God's threat. What's God's threat, according to Rashi? If you're just to put it in your own words. You're going to wind oh. up poor yourself. Yeah, if you don't. I mean, and this is something that's really important, right? We think of loaning, I think we think nowadays of credit and debit, or loans as an industry as being something that's about, let's say, capitalists. Right? Like, you know, I want to start a business or whatever. I need to get my Etsy store off the ground. But what we're talking about here is that people in genuine need, right, need more money than they can get from Sadaka. Or maybe another way of putting it is Shemitah imagines a world in which everyone gets the food that they need, right, the basic sustenance that they need. But what if you have bigger needs than others, right? What if, again, your house blew down? Right? What if the only way for you to survive in the coming years, right before Shemitah, is to take out a, a, a non-trivial loan? Those sources of capital need to be available to you. God is insisting that capital is available to those who need it. Shemitah is not just about a seventh-year utopian imaginary. Shemitah is about a seven-year, i.e. every year, economic critique. Because God is saying, you're not allowed to withhold capital from people. Now, again, I mean, on a case-by-case -case basis, maybe you're not going to loan for everybody. But the point here is that God is saying there needs to be accessible sources of capital for people. That is the norm. And the norm can't be abrogated until the norm is abrogated for everybody in Shemitah. Put that in simpler terms. It needs to be the case that people can get what they need every year. Shemitah... And Shemitah is a whole, you know, wholesale revolution of society to make sure that everyone can. But all six years before Shemitah has to be the case too. And how do you do that? Through loans. Loans, you know, Shemitah Karka, Shemitah Safim. They're the same thing, says Shemitah, says God. Capital needs to be flowing. It's not just what you own. It's what you have to, available for everybody. That needs to be the way it's working. And here comes the threat. If you do not, if you close up shop, if you ab if you abrogate that social norm, if you withdraw from the social contract, then you're going to be the one banging on people's shutters, asking for a handout. What's Rashi's justification of that reading? Well, I mean, besides that, it's from the midrash. 
What's the Midrash's under, uh, reason for that? Because it says, from your brother, the poor, your sibling, i.e. just like you. It's your sibling who is poor, and you might be on the other side of that coin one of these days. Okay. But again, we have, I mean, we don't, what we don't have, we don't have the goon squad breaking down the doors and making sure that loan sharks are handing out money. I think that, you know, that would go too far. But God, you know, in Rashi, in the Midrash's interpretation, is is making, in a sense, a, not just a theological threat of like, you know, don't be mean because they're going to pray against you and say that you're being a bad guy, but also a material threat in saying, if you, if you again, you break the social contract, if you close up your loan shark store or whatever, if you make sure that people don't have access to capital when they need it, then you are going to be on the other side of that equation. Here comes Rambam in his Laws of the Shemitah and of the Jubilee, uh, emphasizing this point. Someone, uh, actually, I'm going to, Nisim, I know you're a big fan of the Rambam. You want to read this in the English? Sure. Great. So the Mishnah Torah in the sabbatical year and the Jubilee 930. One who prevents himself from lending to his fellow before the sabbatical year Lest the death that would be coming to him is delayed and it be released, has transgressed a negative commandment as it is stated in the Varim 59, beware, etc. Right. He shamer lecha pen, etc. Right. Make sure that you do not with, withhold from, from, uh, from those in need, from the needy. Okay, wait, so what's the, just to like make sure we get Rambam's intervention here, like what is he, he's not just saying it's a bad thing. What is he even, what's he even saying? It is a? Transgression. It, it's a sin. That's exactly right. You are violating a law, right? You are violating a negative, a lotase commandment. You are violating a negative commandment. Raj, Rambam is rereading this. It's not just like, lest you do that. He's saying, you sh thou shalt not withhold from the needy. So what's, I mean, so it's not just like, oh, tis tis, you're going to be a bad guy. It's not even just going to be God saying, you are going to actually end up being in need too. Rambam saying, not just, but you're actually, you're literally sinning. And if you violate a, a, a negative commandment, that comes with a real consequence. You, you have to bring a sacrifice, or you have to do this, that, and the other thing. Right? So... Like there's real present-day consequences, Rambam is saying. You are, by violating the social contract, by making sure that, by, by making, by not making sure that there is capital available for, to those who need it, there's a real present consequence. You are sinning. You are doing an Avera. Great. Viter, continue. Okay, so the Varim says, be aware, and etc., and it is a big sin. For behold the Torah, Prohibit, prohibit it with two commandments. So it's not Beware. just one commandment, it's two commandments even you're breaking. That's a big deal. Oh. <laughs> beware yeah. lest. And in every place where it is stated, beware or lest. Right. He shamer or the word pen. Good. Or do not. Or al. Good. It is certainly a negative commandment. Uh -huh. So the fact that the Pusik says he shamer and it says pen, 
right? It means beware and the word lest. Each word signifies that it's actually a distinct negative commandment. You are literally violating two commandments when you are breaking the social contract by making by not making sure capital is available. And the Torah was particular about this commandment and call it un, unrestrained. Uh, yeah, and behold, the word bliao, right? So we go just one second. I'll, I'll I'll bring us back there, back to the pasuk, right? Just make sure we have the pasuk in mind. It says. Hishamer lecha, beware. Pen yedavar im levavcha, right? That you have a matter in your heart, that you like have this terrible thought in your heart. And remember, in Torah, heart means mind. Bliyal, uh, right? Bliyal, so he says unrestrained. That's how we translate it. Bliyal means like baseless, worthless, terrible, right? Bliyal, without anything is what it means, right? So bliyal, though, he doesn't mean just in sense that it's like a moral qualification of your base thought, but also he's saying bliyal in the sense that it is an intensification. It is not just two commandments that you're violating. It's two commandments that God is really insisting on, because bliyal means that there's no limit. So yes, technically it's two, but really you are breaking a fundamental feature of what it means to be a Torah Jew. And behold, scripture add to warn and command not to refrain, but rather to give, as it stated in the Varim 1510th, mm -hmm. you must surely give him and let your heart not hurt when mm -hmm. you give him, etc. And the Holy One, blessed be he, promised reward in this world for this commandment, as it, state, as it is stated. For because of these things will be blessed, he will be blessed, like he blessed you. Okay, so we have three levels of what's going on here. Great reading, Lisa. We have Thank three you. levels of what's going on. One level is that there is a negative commandment. Two negative commandments you're violating. Right, that's already bad enough. Fair. Boo. Second level is that it's not just a negative commandment of like, that's quantifiable. It's qualifiable. Because it's belial. It is so intensified in God's in God's insistence, right? It's a real serious violation. It's not just a, a, a like a discrete thing that you're doing bad. You are really breaking something significant. And last but not least, actually, there's a fourth level. Third, it is a positive commandment. It says, let's vote. It commands us to make sure that we make, make sure that capital is available for people. So it's both a negative commandment that you're violating if you keep people from the loans that they need, and you are missing a positive commandment of the fact that you need to be doing this. And then last but not least, it's not just um, it's not just legal. It's also like trans legal. It's also post legal. It's also moral. It's it's theological. It is religious. The point that he says, because this is a really important thing. This is the source of blessing. You need to be a blessing for others. That is the way that I will be a blessing for you. Renee. Um, my question is, how do you determine if someone is needy? Because to me, there seems to be a big difference lending somebody money to rebuild their house after it burned down or lending money to someone who, uh, I don't know, has a successful Starbucks franchise and wants to open, you know, 10 more stores and, you know, start expanding. To me, Would the needy person is the first one. 
Would you say that person, the second person, needs another Starbucks franchise? Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's the seventh year, and the Starbucks guy comes to you and says, I want some, you know, I, I want a loan. Right. And then you're like, well, you just said you're not supposed to change your... Um, so you need to make sure that capital is available for those who need it. Right. So how do not, you determine... Not for, those, not, not for those who want it. So this is talking about loans for the needy, but not necessarily the economic... Like how you make money and you have, you are completely within your rights to say, you know what, I'm not going to be a co-signer on a loan so that you can open up your new uh, boutique Starbucks franchise, you know, at like, uh, you know, at Bathurst and, and Steel's or whatever. Yeah, but then you're already changing your, you're already changing your, what did you call them before? The social um, Your parameters. Like if it was Shemitah, like one year after Shemitah, okay, right. sure, I'll lend you the money. Because I'm going to make money too over the next seven years. But in right. Shemitah, you're six. Then you're changing your parameters because you're saying, well, you're not uh, a needy person. In the case of the Avion, I think this is very important, right? It's in the case of the of, of Avion means the poor. Right? So, in the sense of like impoverished, right? So like we're talking about somebody who has an emergency need of capital, not somebody who like wants to expand their business. So then are we talking about this? Shemitah? Like if you're loaning somebody. If, if, let's say you had capital lined up to open up a business and you put everything into it, right? And then one of your backers pulled out. Then if it's the case that your family's livelihood depends on this, I would say that you're, you are in that case in Evian. Yes. But that's what we're talking about. We're talking about people who need a source of capital, not people who would prefer a source of capital. Is there a baked in that gets involved to make that decision? Yeah, I think this, I mean, these are the, you know, good, weighty questions, the grisly, meaty questions that like, you know, what, I mean, in a way, you could, I think the precedent Rambam Ram is setting might allow for that, you know, in the sense he's saying, listen, there's two negative commandments you're violating and this positive commandment you're missing out on. And you can't, you can't legislate somebody missing out on a positive, you're not going to like drag everyone who doesn't put on tefillin into the base team. Right. But um, but at least violating a negative commandment. I mean, there's a potential case that you'd be making here. I guess the question might be, is it between you and God or between you and people? That's an important question. And we should go into Rambam's book of mitzvahs about it. But, you know, or is, on the other hand, or is Rambam using all this like intensely you know, poetic and flowery language to be basically trying to compensate for the fact that this remain this is still in some ways a moral threat. Right. That this isn't like an actionable legal consequence we can really like we can really ensure. I mean, a lot of this, again, is very theoretical stuff because, you know, like as early as the Mishnah, right, the prose bulls developed. So like, you know, the, a way to maintain a loan through the Shemitah gets developed pretty early. But I guess the question really is, um, you know, again, in the vision of what Shemitah is originally trying to describe, it's, it's able to anticipate a potential problem and it's trying to compensate for it by either, you know, basically saying you are going to be making a moral failing, right? That's in the Pasuk of like, you know, lest they like look at your miserliness and, and cry out to God for you. That's a real like religious failing of yours. Rashi's saying it's not just that, but it's a potential material consequence in the sense that God's going to, you know, like uh, to take it out on you to make sure that you end up needy on the, on the other side of the door. And Rambam's saying, actually, it's it's a serious religious violation in the sense that there's three mitzvahs that you're missing out, you're, you're violating or missing out on, and that the, the consequences are potentially quite significant. Um, so 
I, you know, I, I want, I'm, I'm trying to, in a way, like, kind of balance between the fact that Shemitah is an ambitious social program, but it's one that anticipates its potential drawbacks, and it's trying to compensate by making sure it doesn't end up reaching too far, and the whole thing kind of, kind of like, snaps and, and, and disintegrates. But in turn, is this, a, is this a rule just for men? No, I don't, I don't see why it would be. We, we have examples of women who are doing business in the Talmud. Why are you, do you have a lot of people you're, uh, you're stringing along in loans right now? <laughs> no. no, no, I was just thinking of Esher's Chayil and it says, you know, um, she, opens her hand mm -hmm. where is it where are we yeah. to the needy and spreads out her palm to the poor and what it's what it's what that implies is that there's two levels of mental poverty there's one who's poor for whatever conditions or situations they got caught in mm -hmm. and then there's another one who can't even think enough to to know that they need you know mm -hmm. and so we really need to like those are the people we have to reach out to Mm -hmm. But the like the needy, the poor can come and ask for help still. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of this context in terms of like Ashes Chayil, or as a famous example, actually in the fifth or sixth parakasubis about like uh, one of the rabbi's wives who's like a big balas sedaka, right? It's usually talking about sedaka, but I think you're quite right to say, in a way, and I think this is what the Pasuk is making, the difference, and as I think to Renee's point too, the difference between loans and sedaka is one of, is one of, of, is one of degree, not of kind. Right, that loans need to be available because it is another way in which the needy are able to gain access to capital. Right, you can only expect someone to give so much in tzedakah, but a loan you, is a much higher quantity of money that you can expect from people because the ideas are going to pay them back. Right, so it, those that that higher level of money needs to be available for people because sometimes you have real emergent needs that demand higher costs. Right, but very often mm -hmm. in Jewish law a husband can override the woman's word um so I or mean, the father yeah so really? i mean like, i think uh, i mean it's complicated um <laughs> it's definitely complicated i i think it's a little bit and I, and I think it might actually draw us away from this a little bit but there are plenty of examples in the talmud and halakha of women operating independently as economic actors so I, I don't think it's right to say that this is strictly, let's say, a, like a, a men's halakhic issue. This is a, 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 a halakhic issue at large. Okay, so let's, let's press on. We'll, uh, we get to one of my favorite commentators. I mean, I love all the commentators. I'm sorry, other commentators. So this is from the Nitziv, Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin. It was a student of the Vlajner Rabbi, the founder of the Vlajner Yeshiva. Um, a, famous, a Lithuanian uh, rabbi from the 19th century. And he has a very thoughtful, very conceptual, very, very uh, thought through commentary. It's a really, it's a really beautiful thing. I really recommend look, checking it out. He says, so, you know, he, this is how he approaches the issue, kind of the question of what's happening in the, in the creditor's heart. He says, uh, don't let it, don't let yourself have these wicked thoughts. He says, so, so he actually actually moves it out of the question of the actional question or the question of whether you're giving or not. He says, you can't let the person asking for money recognize the fact 
that you are not giving voluntarily. So he's already assuming Rashi and Rambam have done their work, that of course you're giving the money in the sixth year of, of the Shemitah cycle. So then what is this, what's this Pusuk saying? That not only do you have to make sure that capital is available for those in need, but also what? Like give it with good, like a good uh, face? Yes, that you need to make sure to be protecting somebody's dignity. Think about a person who is in need in the sixth year of Shemitah. Think about how vulnerable that person is. Fine, maybe you're going to give them a loan that they need. But you can give it in such a way as if you're going to really make them like really understand just how much they owe you, right? How much over them you are. And isn't then Shemitah being ruined? Isn't Shemitah supposed to bring us into more equality with each other? So the Ha'amek Dover says, no, 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 you're not even allowed in your heart to resent them. You can't let, I mean, let's say even, let's say you are freaking out about giving out this loan in the sixth year, but you can't let them know that. That's not, that's not fair to them. You're not allowed to offload that onto them. Why? He says, because lev sameach metiv geha. Because a, a, a happy heart um, does so much good. I, I call it a miracle cure. Vehachi hu and the opposite's the case too. A lev ra, a miserly, small heart, um, does really, you know, brings great pain to someone's presence. Right? You can do real damage in just the emotional dynamics. And that's the thing is the Ha'amek Dover says, listen, you, can't, you can never just say, ah, oh, it's just business. Shemitah doesn't let us think that anything is ever just business. Shemitah is making us realize that economic relationships are really human relationships. That we need to, that we are inherently, fundamentally responsible for each other. And not just materially. It's not just about making sure capital is available, but also you need to make sure to be protecting people's dignity. He says, for in return of this, right? Because you need to give them this person with a good eye, i.e. generously. And they're going to give it back to you. Aho! So the idea here is that's developing a network of, of reciprocity. They're going to give it back to you with a spirit of generosity. And this is like the carrots, not just the stick, right? Rambam ended with a carrot too. Ha'amek Davar is saying that we need to not forget that we are attached to each other. We are we have these fundamental relationships. We need to take care of each other. And it's not just about you bestowing as this rich guy money on the poor. That is one over the other. And Shemitah is supposed to be bringing us more inequality. Rather, it's not just them that's vulnerable. You're vulnerable when you give them money in the sixth year. But if you give it to them in a way that shows that you trust them and that you care about them, they're going to pay you back. Do we see that? That they're going to see you as a human being, not just somebody they're squeezing money out of or eking money out of. Them. And they're going to see themselves as a human being because you saw them as a human being. And they're going to own that dignity and perform that dignity and actualize that dignity and pay you back and bless you. That, and it, I mean, this is an incredible point. I really, just before I get to Renee's question or comment, I want to say, part of the dignity aspect here is that even the poor gets to be a creditor in this relationship, says the Nitziv. How? Because they may give you the money but you give them the blessing. It ennobles the debtor. That's the 
intervention of Shemitah. Yeah, Renee. Okay, so you're saying that even though you lend them the money, um, they pay you back with the bracha? Is that what you're saying? I mean, no, with money, but they're also going to bless you. How are they going to pay you back? Because that's it's, it's the debt is... But the loan for Shemitah is, is non, you know... Right. So we have two cases. I think ideally they're going to pay you back, you know, before Shemitah happens. Okay. But let's say they don't. What's Ha'amek Davar saying you're going to get instead? Uh, you're going to get the bracha, the, the blessing, you know, but yeah. I'm also, I'm also wondering like, <sighs> you know, I've had this, well, I, I mean, I've had this experience also and, you know, um, where, you lend somebody something and they're so grateful mm -hmm. that they want to pay you back, but not with money, you know? So like, right. are you allowed to accept um, I mean, like, things? I'll, I'll, I'll like grout your, 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 your bathroom tiles. Yeah. Like if once they get to a position where they actually have something to give, they want to give back to you. And, you know, I'm always saying, you know, this is not necessary. Don't buy my kids gifts. They don't need gifts, you know, and just, like, this is our old nanny. She always buys gifts for my kids. I'm like, they don't need anything, you know, just pass it along to somebody who guess, really needs, I mean, you know, like she but, wants I mean, to like pay me back somehow or pay us that. back. And I'm like, it's not necessary. But then like, I'm wondering in, in terms at, of the Shemitah year. But look at the Nitzvah's point. That right. they give, they give you blessing. Right. That's all I need. No, but no, I, th I think I want to read it a little bit differently. Okay. I'm reading it a little bit, a little bit, I'm pushing the Nitziv a little bit. I think what, what it's showing is that to give somebody or to be an employer or a creditor in a way that inspires reciprocity is the, the, the goal of Shemitah. The goal of Shemitah isn't that, I mean, like, you know, in Mashiach, the, all, you know, all debts will be abolished forever, but Shemitah is a, is a one-year break in the normal activity. But the point of it, in a way, is to remind us of the fundamental human relationship that's at, that, that's the heart of every economic relationship. And it also is a, let's say it's a, it's, a, it's a more subtle kind of equality in the sense that it recognizes people need money, and some people have money. And we need to make sure that the people with money are giving to the people who need money. Okay, but then isn't that going to be potentially exploitable, right? We're going to have a whole subclass of people who are just begging, knocking for money. They feel subhuman. They feel less than. They feel terrible. And the answer is no, because the way this is supposed to be done is that you give it with a good heart and you give in a way that recognizes somebody's dignity and you make sure that they don't feel um, uh, pathetic, that they don't feel like gross or whatever, you know, grubbing, asking you, that you are actually entering a relationship with them. And then you know it's a good one. How? Because they get to be generous too. That's how it's a good relationship. Now, I'm not saying employers should be expecting employees to like give them gifts and stuff like that. That's exploitation. But rather, if employees or debtors or whatever are able to take their own agency back and not see themselves as just takers, right? Like the whole nasty framing from like Milton Friedman feh, of makers and takers. The Torah doesn't believe in makers and takers. The Torah only believes in blessers. And everyone is a bestower. Everyone has the opportunity to bless. Some people can bless by, by providing 
capital. Some people bless by providing blessings, and some people bless because they have the opportunity to be able to recapture their dignity by being a giver, not just a borrower. Um, yeah, Renee. Um, I think Susie has a question. Okay. But I'll go after Susie. I'm late and I do want to try to finish the source sheet. Um, I just, I'm just saying that, but that having been said, your questions are more important than my blathering. So yeah, Susie. No, I was just sort of, what this is saying is like sort of really, really similar to how we work at the community center that I work at. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's really important that people feel like included in the programming and part of the decision-making and everything so that, you know, like it's not us like just you know, giving to them or lording over them or like it's, it's about mm -hmm. equality and inclusion, right? So 100%. yeah, I think that's right, right? That I, I think the Torah through Shemitah is trying to de-economize the economic system, right? That is saying it is, it is first and foremost a human system. Yes, it happens through money. Yes, it happens through certain kinds of, uh, you know, difference of vulnerability. But some, but it, we cannot forget that everyone here is not just um, is not just in need. Everyone here has inherent dignity that needs to be protected. Yeah, Renee. Um. So I guess my question is, um, like, is the repayment of the loan like only um, have to do with dollar to dollar, or like if you lend somebody money and it's like the sixth year? And you know the loan's going to be forgiven, but you give it to a needy person, and you know you you know that you're probably not going to get your money back. But then, like, I don't know, two truckloads of apples show up on your driveway. Like, what do you are you allowed to accept that? Because it's almost like, you know, they're repaying you somehow, even though they're not supposed to. Is that like transgressing the Shemitah like, year? It's like a Sopranos situation. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Do I'm just saying, like. That like okay, you're, I'm giving you a loan, but then it's Shemitah year, and like all of a sudden they're giving you, you know, right? I think things back to pay you back, ways, but like I, I think in some ways this is intuitive, right? Like intuitive, like if somebody let's say welches on what they owed you, right? They owed you money, and and before Shemitah, and they didn't pay you back, and then they give you a gift later because they feel bad and they want to give it back to you. That's lovely, and you can accept the gift, but they don't owe it to you, and that's really important. Whereas if you like. Put them in a situation which they feel like they do owe you even though the debt has been canceled then that's wrong I, I, okay I, yeah in ahead. other words in other words people don't get to choose how they pay it back they've got to pay back exactly what they borrowed well i mean ideally yes yeah, you, you lend money they've got to pay back money very clear if shemitah happens before you pay the pay a loan back you don't owe them money anymore i mean again right that bracketing pros bull like you know in, in the ideal shemitah situation if you borrowed money let's say like at 11:59, right before rosh hashanah sixth year of the shemitah cycle a minute later you don't owe people money anymore well okay but again let's say you borrowed money from somebody in somewhere in the sixth year you drew up terms. You were supposed to pay them back before Shemitah happens, and you didn't. Let's say for a totally like understandable reason, something terrible happened, and you just didn't have the money, right? Like you just you just didn't. Have, it's not like you were being negligent. You just didn't have it. That's unfortunate, but that's a that's all again. All loans are risk, and all loans are again. And that's what I'm trying to say. Shemitah helps us remember how vulnerable we are. That economic relations recognize in some way human vulnerability. 
And the key to Shemitah is, is, is remembering that we're not just profit monsters, that we're human beings. And that economics can be a way actually to ennoble people and to recognize and to protect each other's dignity, not a way of taking advantage of each other's vulnerability. And that's the critique that Shemitah is making. And, and, and so I think the Natsiv is saying two things in his second comment. One is by giving somebody alone in a way that recognizes their dignity with a hat, with a good smiling heart, that will actually, I think, lead them to be in a situation in which they will try their best to pay you back as, as much as they can. But even if they don't, like, because they just couldn't, Natsiv is also trying to create, like, let's say, like, a theological, like, spiritual credit of sorts in which they will be like their heart will be paying you back because they will be blessing you and what it means is that he's trying to say yeah again alone is not that different from tzedakah the point is that you're giving people what they need the point is secondarily you're getting back what you what you what you gave so again ideally the person will pay you back of course they owe you money but if they don't, then Natsiv is trying to, in a way, to like soften that blow by saying, like, there's something more important that Shemitah is trying to help us remember. Our souls, right? That often we check our souls at the door when we enter the loan office, when we enter the bank. And Shemitah is trying to help us remember that we never stop being spiritual creatures, even when we are dealing. Are we allowed to pay back during Shemitah year? Like, not to request it, but to... If it's opt to volunteer to pay back some or in yeah, full. You're always allowed to give a gift. But again, you oh. can't be, but you can't, but no one can force you to give it back because they, you don't owe them anything. So say you, you lend me $10,000 and with the condition that it's paid before Shemitah, whatever our conditions were, okay. and something goes wrong for me and I get it two weeks into Shemitah. Okay. That's on so me. it's on me, but I can still pay you back. Yeah, if you want to. I think that's his point, right? Is that the person will give the person will re, will regard you with a good eye. I think he's like saying on one hand, like if you and if you recognize people's dignity, they might be likely to pay you back even if they don't need to. I think again, what we're getting to here is not the question of obligation. When Shemitah happens, all relations of obligation are abrogated. They're gone. They're done. But then Nitzvah is trying to return us in a way to remember that we're both human beings. That, you know, you, by recognizing someone's dignity, they might end up actually going above and beyond for you. Or let's say they can't, or they don't, or whatever. Then there's still another level in which you never get paid back, but by, 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 by recognizing someone's vulnerability and by protecting their dignity, you are getting something back also, which is bracha, right? You're getting back a sense of what it means to be engaged in this process of blessing right like you know it's the it's the positive side of what we saw in the midrash the midrash says if you withhold from people who need you will be poor and the netziv is saying if you give to people in need without primarily concerning yourself with whether you get paid back or not you will be you will be rich right you will be spiritually rich now again is that enough to compensate is that enough to make sure people will be living up to their obligations even when it's hard i don't know but we've we're looking at like this this edifice is being constructed rashi right saying that you're you know there's the potential consequence of, ha of having it swing around on you rambam having the religious consequence of it being a mitzvah and how important this is and Nitziv saying that you know, the humanistic point he's making right that there's something fundamentally interhuman about about 
human dignity that's being recognized and practiced even in economic relationships. That the Shemitah is a, is a resistance and a refusal to believe that when we're dealing with, mat, with material goods and with economics, that we're not still dealing with our souls. It's still spiritual work. Um, okay, so let's look at the... Um, let's, let's, let's move on to this, this, this last Midrash from, from the Sifra, which is, I believe is our last text. Um, and then we'll, we'll close here. So the Midrash says this, it says, Lachem, for you, not for others. To eat, and not to bring, and not to bring uh, sacrifices, basically. Not to bring libation, like drink, you know, wine offerings, even. Right, we saw this above, right? You're, for you, your servants, your maidservants. What is the Torah saying? By including. Right, it's saying, it's saying it's not about planning for the future. It's not about bringing offerings. It's not, it's about consumption. It's about bringing us back to remembering what we need. Right, going back to what we were talking about last week. Shemitah brings us back to recognize what we need. It says, What is the Torah saying? Because it says, um, for, uh, It says, In seventh year you will let the land rest and will lie fallow so that the poor of your people may eat. I might have thought, that the fruit of Shemitah, of the Shemitah year, might only be eaten by the poor. Minayin aflashirin. How do I know that the rich get to eat too? Now, that's interesting, isn't it? You might have thought that the Shemitah year, in a way, is a year of tzedakah. It's a year in which we, again, we cease all economic activity, and it's like this, oh, it's this beautiful thing in which we make sure that we means test Shemitah. It's only for the poor. If you can prove that you're poor, great, you get to eat. But no, the Midrash says it's not just for the poor. Shemitah is for everybody, because the point of Shemitah is to be teaching not just the people who need that they deserve to get what they need, right? Shemitah is teaching us a, that the poor deserve to have access to what they need, right? Whether it's loans or, or food, right? That you have a right to access to capital and you have a right to access to food. But it's also teaching the rich, those with means, that they also are still in touch with their needs. That it's not just that they're being you know, charitable and generous in giving, they are part of this too. They take a hit this year, and thus they get to benefit. And there's something I think really powerful about the fact that Shemitah is a universal program in this way, in which it's not just like a charitable program in which it's, it's designed for the poor to get something, but everyone, even the rich, are equally invested, or at least are also invested in what it means for their Shemitah to function. So how do we know that even the rich get to eat? Talmud Lamar, lecha lov decha lamatecha. Lecha, you too. Not just, not just the servants and maidservants, but also you, the employer. Har, har, pardon me. Hare ba'alim ashirim amurim. It refers to employers, ba'alim, owners, capitalists even, rich people, 
That's what it's talking about. Avadi Mushfachot Amuri. Man is talking about employees, servants, maidservants, etc. In Kane Lamana Amar Vihluavyonayamecha, why does it say Vahluavyonayamecha that the poor of your people will eat? Ha'aniyim ochlim achar habeyor v'lo ashirim, divrei Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Yehuda says that the poor are allowed to eat after the beor. Now this is a technical feature of Shemitah. That's when you remove from the storehouse the fruits of the Shemitah period. Okay, so the poor, the poor are allowed, are supposed to eat first. Okay? The poor eat first, not the rich, says Rabbi Yehuda. But Rabbi Yossi says, They both eat after, basically at the initiation of Shemitah. What I'm taking from this, and what, I, what, the, what the point I'm gleaning, ha ha ha, from this, is that there is a, a program of social equity in Shemitah. It is not a means-tested program of, 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 um, of bestowing charity on the needy, but rather it actually, in a way, reduces everyone, at least in Rabbi Yossi's model. Even Rabbi Yehuda says that both the rich and the poor get to eat. In a way, actually, the poor have like privilege in Shemitah in this kind of way. And they get to eat first. But Rabbi Yossi, in a way, is like even more radical by insisting it's a universal program. Everyone is on the same playing field when it comes to Shemitah. Everyone is brought back. It's a program of, like, of degrowth, right? It's a program in which everyone is brought back to the bare essentials, and everyone is remembering what it is that they really need. You know, back to, to Renee's point about the question of loans, you know, who's needy, who's not. Shemitah is a program that helps us remember the difference between needs and wants. Shemitah is about helping us relearn how to reconstruct a society based on making sure that everyone gets what they need. And then after that, people can get what they want. I think that's something key that we're missing in a lot of our talks about Shemitah, which tend to just make it something spiritual. What I've tried to show in these classes is I've, I've, I've tried to bring out the spiritual elements we talked about above, about Rambam's point about, you know, about the charitable nature of, you know, it's a basic principle and you're doing something bad, boo boo. And I'm uh, saying that the poor is going to bless you too, that these are all lovely ideas, but part of it is always, always, always about making sure that we have a society in which everyone who needs gets what they need. And only after they get what they need can people get what they want. Shemitah is a pedagogical program in which it's trying to re, um, reprogram us about how to function economically, not to check our souls at the door when we enter the storehouse, right? Not to check our neshama at the door when we enter the bank, but rather all of our economic activity is first and foremost interhuman activity, and thus we can never forget what we owe to each other. It is not an accident that right before the Shemitah verses, this is what the Torah says. You shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the feelings of the stranger, having yourselves been strangers in the land of Egypt. Six years you sow your land and gather in its yield, da-da-da-da-da. Those seemingly are irrelevant. You don't oppress the stranger. Also, there's Shemitah. But Shemitah is designed to help us remember the fundamental contingency of what it means to be alive and how that was taught to us through Jewish history and our experiences in Egypt, that we never stop being vulnerable. We never stop living that contingent, precarious life. And all of economic security, all of the loans that we make might teach us, oh, you know what? I'm not a taker. I'm a maker, baby. 
I give people money. I'm fine. And the point that Shemitah is trying to teach us is that too is a relationship of vulnerability. That too brings you into contact with those who need. And Shemitah helps us relearn how to remember what it is to be in that precarious state. Rashi says, and what is left, the animals will eat, right? Shemitah, you don't farm, but whatever's left over, that's what the animals eat. Rashi says, this connects the food of the poor with the food of the animals. Not in a way that animalizes the poor, but rather that shows that we are all on this basic level. Just as animals eat without needing to tithe, a hoe, so do the poor eat without tithing. And thus we see that there's no miser during Shemitah. Oh-ho! So it's not that Shemitah is a time for the poor. Rather, everyone's poor during Shemitah. Shemitah is, you know, I, I said this actually in Shul this past Shabbos. I said, you know, there's, Judaism isn't like a, you know, you don't take a vow of poverty when you become a rabbi. You know, it's often quite the opposite. Um, although not for everyone, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, here actually we do have a program of poverty. Shemitah is a year of degrowth. Shemitah is a year in which you are not, um, a businessman. You are an animal. Everyone's an animal. We're all brought back in touch with our basic, basic needs. But interestingly, and Rashi brings that point very subtly around the back end because Rashi says, how do we know this? Because there's no miser during Shemitah. If the poor and animals don't give mice, like food that you feed to animals, you don't need to give, you don't need to tithe from. And the food that, and tzedakah, you don't need to tithe from that. And the fact then that there's no tithing during Shemitah means that we're all on the same level. We're all on that same basic level. Because if there's no tithing when you give to those who need, and you are then the food that you eat don't doesn't need a tithe either. It means that you're on that level too. Um, and we'll, we'll we'll close with this really incredible text from the Kliyakar, who's a 17th century uh, commentator and essayist and preacher named Ephraim Lunschitz. Schintz. He says this. The seventh year causes assembly and, oh, so sorry, this is in his commentary on what's called on the midst of the Hakel. Hakel is during Sukkot, the king would gather the whole nation and would read from the Torah, and basically it would be the way in which the king is supposed to be the teacher-in-chief, the educator-in-chief, which is a much more beautiful notion of the executive, I think, than a lot of contemporary societies. But um, the Hakel uses a lot of similar language as the Shemitah, and the Kliyakar is trying to explore this. So he says, That the Shnata Shemitah Gorem Gamkem Hahakel, right? And the Shemitah causes some kind of ingathering, right? For this gathering of the people for some kind of education. And a sense of social harmony. Because we're not engaging in agrarian labor, right? We're not planting and we're not harvesting, etc. And the poor of our nation are guaranteed the food that they need. Because the landowner is not permitted to hold on to the produce, right, the food of the seventh year, like you would when you're trying to be a, an owner, i.e. an employer. You're not allowed to engage in profits. What's this like? 
It's like manna. You're not allowed to hold on to extra food. You're not allowed to hold on to stockpile. You're not allowed to try to gain advantage over anyone else. Like we said above, Shemitah is a year of, of complete distribution. You're, everyone has to get what they need. That's your number one task. And this undoubtedly is the reason for the social harmony. Shemitah is a year of peace and harmony and equality. He says all of this social strife, all these rebos, right, all these like claims you make against each other, the, the, the contests, the arguments, the disagreements, it all comes from arguments over who deserves and who owns what. Someone says, that's mine, and someone says, no, that's mine. Someone says, oh, that's all mine. Someone says, that's all mine. Someone says, part of that's mine. The other person says, no, all of it's mine. Right? We see all this in halacha, right? arguing over who has a claim to this, who has a claim to that. But no, that's not allowed on the seventh year. Rather, it is a positive commandment that so in the it's a very interesting point. It's very it's a very subtle point, but with this we'll close. He says in the kumva ase, not everyone's equal, right? Some people, uh, when shemitah rolls around, everyone not everyone's equal yet. It's not Mashiach time. Some people are rich. Some people are poor, even on shemitah. And shemitah is trying to teach us what it means to gain access to try to teach us how to prioritize a, a society that, that distributes more efficiently, that makes sure everyone gets what they need, yes. But the fact is, you know, some person's got like $3 million in their bank account, someone else has $2 in their bank account. This is true. So some people are able to gain access, you know, have access to more resources than other people. Fine. But when it comes to the velota say everyone is equal. When it comes to what you're not allowed to do, everyone's the same because you're not allowed to engage in agrarian labor. You're not allowed to be, you know, extracting your, your debts from people. It levels people out. And not just that, I would say it also removes us from these exploitative relationships. And that's the source of social harmony, says the Kliyaka. So, you know, as we wrap up, I want, to, I want to make sure, you know, we see what the Kliyakar is saying, So I think actually it's a really great place to end. Shemitah is not just about the technical rule of, um, of ceasing, you know, agricultural labor at a certain time. It's not even just the technical rule of the fact that the loans peter out at that time, but it is a radical social program that has a certain social end, and that end is harmony, equality and peace. Shemitah is, Shemitah cannot work if it means that we have a more stressed out or an anxious society, one in which people are trying to work around it or, or get all these loopholes and the like, or even if, you know, like we were, like the Pasuk anticipated, even if Shemitah would make us less inclined to help each other out. Shemitah works because it is trying to insist on showing us what the fundamental essence of what it means to be alive is, what it, to regain connection and access to what it is that we need 
Shemitah is telling us remember what it is to have needs, not just have wants. To have, um, to have bare necessities, not just aspirations. And not why? Because think about what happens in the eighth year. If someone comes around to you and says, I need this loan, and you have had a year in which you've had to deny yourself opportunity after opportunity, then you are going to, I think, I hope, and I think the Torah hopes this too, be more inclined to help somebody else achieve. Because you know what it's like to not be able to because of context and circumstance. In a way, Shemitah is a material program of moral sentiments. It is trying to strip away our advantages over each other, remove us from exploitative relationships, help us regain fundamental basic connections with each other, and help us remember how it is that we are fundamentally interconnected, that we need each other, and that Shemitah is trying to teach us ultimately what it is we need, and one of the first things we realize that we need is each other. So I hope that we're able to, in our individual ways, learn that, especially as we continue learning more about Shemitah as the year progresses. Um, thank you so much for joining for uh, a class in which we really did, you know, the two sessions really covered a lot, but I hope we've, we've gained a, you know, a taste of what else Shemitah has to offer us. Um, I'm going to drop the source sheet in the chat um, if you want to learn it along at home. And um, let's see what else is going on. Thursday, Parsha chat. We're going to be talking about Parsha Tzitzaveh. Uh, Shabbos, as always, Shabbos. Um, so please sign up to come to shul. It'd be great to see you. Saturday night, we're having a uh, we're having a havdalah in front of the shul at 7 p.m. and then we're walking to Eglinton Park and going skating. So I hope you can join us. Um, it we'll be celebrating Purim Katan. So if you are inclined to enjoy a nip of a little bit of schnapps, you are more than welcome to bring some boozed up hot cocoa. Uh, and then uh, we'll be having a special class next Monday. We'll take a quick break from Shemitah because we went so hardcore. We'll be learning about Purim Katan, one of my favorite uh, major minor holidays, um, and pressing on as always. Um, all right, thank you so much, everybody, um, and have a great week. Shabbat Shalom.